Hello and welcome to Modern American Diplomacy, a podcast exploring the lives and contributions of America's most accomplished diplomats. I'm your host, Ben Reams, recording in Virginia. Today we have something different. In this podcast, we normally interview leaders of our diplomatic ranks. This is an episode about greats who are no longer with us. And while they're legendary to some, they have also been overlooked. Today I'm speaking with the directors and producers of The American Diplomat, a documentary which explores the lives and legacies of three African-American ambassadors, Edward Dudley, Terrence Todman, and Carl Rowan. One of my favorite lines in the film is Ambassador Aurelia Brazil's quote where she says, the currency of diplomacy is optimism. And you have to be optimistic to be a diplomat. And I think with these three characters and with many Black diplomats, people of color that were representing the United States, I think then and now, there is a belief in the promise of America. You recognize the issues, you recognize the hypocrisies, you recognize the work that still needs to be done. But I think they really believed, number one, in the possibilities of America. The creators are here with me today. Leola Calzolai Stewart, Kylie Kraskowskis, and Rochelle Shapiro. So I'd like to start with short introductions, and I'd like to begin with the three of them introducing themselves so that the audience has a sense of who's talking. So I'll turn it first to Leola. Hi, my name is Leola Kozlai Stewart. I am one of the co-founders of Flow State Films, which is based in the DC area. And I'm also the director and co-producer of The American Diplomat, which is a documentary film that looked at the lives and careers of three Black diplomats, Terrence Todman, Edward R. Dudley, and Carl Rowan. And it aired on American Experience PBS in February of 2022. My name is Rochelle Shapiro. I am also a co-founder of Flow State Films, producer of The American Diplomat. And Kylie, Leola, and I have been working together in some capacity for about 15 years. And I'm Kylie Kraskowskis, also co-founder of Flow State and producer on The American Diplomat. I've been interested in documentary films and social change dating back to, I'd say, graduate school. I studied sociology and very interested in these issues of workplace, race gender. And having a film like The American Diplomat explore these issues has been just a really exciting opportunity, I think, for me, but all of us at Flow State. So thank you for having us here to talk about it. Yeah, thank you for joining. I was going to leave this to be revealed later, but I'm curious how you met and how you came to work together. Okay. So we all met at a production company in Northern Virginia. I was working there, then hired Kylie as an intern Within a year or two later, hired Leola as an editor, and the three of us became really fast friends. We had a lot of commonalities in what we wanted to do with our careers and our lives, and we used to talk about one day the dream of owning our own production company. And fast forward 10, 11 years, we had each gone our different directions after this production company, and the stars aligned, and it was the right time for all of us. And we were able to form Flow State Films in 2015. And the American Diplomat was the first project we decided to do as Flow State as an independent Mm. project. And I'll let Leola talk about why she brought that as the first film for Flow State. I love the name of the company, by the way. No, thank you. you. 
So yeah, the film has a personal connection. I have a personal interest in investment, I think, in this history. My husband is a diplomat and we've been foreign service family for about 20 years now. And we would go overseas and go to post and be one of the few Black families, if any, that would be in these small post communities. So after a while, you want to investigate and understand why that's so. And at the same time, my husband, through his career, had been meeting a lot of mentors, Black diplomats who would talk about their early careers navigating the Foreign Service. And he thought that these were great stories that nobody was really talking about or weren't really known by many people. And he gave me a book called Black Diplomacy by Dr. Michael Crenn, who's featured in the film. And mm-hmm. it's sort of these three things that converged. And I started reading more and looking at archives, ADST, one of them, the oral histories that are housed there, and brought the idea to Rochelle and Kylie. And we decided to try to tell a story within this history and explore it a little more in film. So we developed The American Diplomat. That's awesome. Thank you. And by the way, I was going to mention regardless about ADST, so thanks for the plug. But we have oral histories. It's what we do and specialize in. And we've recently been contacted by other documentary makers in Japan and elsewhere who are interested in the original audio recordings. So that's something we're looking to do more of. Wasn't something that was intended, but could add, I think, a lot of texture to some of these documentary projects. So so thanks for that. (laughs) So for the first question, I really want to go way back if I can, because one of the things that I found was really interesting in the documentary that I was not aware of was this circuit that Black diplomats were limited to serve in. And by that, I really do mean a circuit that involved Madagascar, the Caribbean, West Africa. I want to mention that because it goes back so far in history. And I think sort of a casual observer would look at the more recent barriers broken by Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell as our premier African-American diplomats. But the history goes back to President Grant appointing Ebenezer Don Carlos Bassett as Consul General in Haiti in 1869. And after that, lots of prominent African-Americans become diplomats, including Frederick Douglass, but were limited for a long time to a certain number of countries. So I was wondering if you could say anything, what you found about that circuit. Yeah, I was known as the Negro Circuit. And there's a great piece by historian Allison Blakely, who does kind of a survey of early Black diplomats during the Reconstruction period. And you can see that people were sent to a little small number of people still, but sent to different posts like Richard T. Greener, who was sent to Russia. There were Black diplomats sent to South America, India. And then after Reconstruction, that really begins to shrink. And by the time you get into the 40s with Edward R. Dudley and the research that is laid out in his memo, you see that Black diplomats are really relegated to five posts. They were generally considered hardship posts. Some of those posts were places where countries where the populations were predominantly Black. So there is this idea that Black diplomats wouldn't be accepted at other posts outside of that circuit, which was something that was completely an American State Department idea, not necessarily reality, but it was one of the excuses that they use to keep Black diplomats within the circuit. 
And those countries were, as you mentioned, Haiti and Madagascar, Liberia, and then also the Canary Islands and the Azores. So you see by the 40s, just really this black diplomats doing the circuit and spending years in Liberia while white counterparts were limitless in their possibilities and where they could serve. So it was really a defining aspect, I think, of the experience of Black diplomats during those early years. Right. That was an interesting aspect, too, of the memo is pointing out how long individuals served in those mm-hmm. countries. And that's a key part of the Foreign Service rotating exactly. and yeah. getting more exposure. A great use of a memo, by the way. <laughs> that was very impressive. Thank you. Ryan Shepard and Edgeworks, they did our graphics design. So he found great ways to move on that memo and use it as a powerful visual. Yeah, I'll just jump in and ask a question about that. I was really impressed by the visuals that you were able to to get. I mean, mm-hmm. you know documentaries so well, right? And some of them with these periods where there wasn't anything recorded visually, well, it wasn't much. It's sometimes hard to make it visually interesting, but your documentary really stood out for that. Did you have luck or did you have an approach or what's your what's your approach? Blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> I think it was a little bit of luck and yeah. uh, a little bit of strategy. <laughs> It's just a lot of research and searching until you find a lot of research and searching and being creative in how you search. That was something that we learned. We had a great research team headed by Amy Johansson, who's actually a local archival producer. She was able to wrangle what was essentially, I think, by the end count, like something like 600 and something archival assets in the final piece. But yeah, I mean, it was reaching out to families. Mm -hmm. The Todman family, the Dudley family, and the Rowan family were very generous in letting us use archival. I think one of my favorite parts of the film is the Liberia photos where Dudley was in Liberia with the other Black diplomats that were working there during that time. I had never Mm -hmm. seen those photos before, and that's part of the Griff Davis archive. And Griff Davis was a photographer turned diplomat, and he was there recording this moment in history. So for the audience who can't see the pictures, can you say a little bit of what they looked like? Yeah, there are these beautiful, stunning black and white photographs of Black diplomats in action in Liberia caught in family moments. There's photos of people Mm -hmm. working within the embassy. There are photos of people engaged in what was the Point Four program, so like development stuff that was happening. Griff Davis also did film. So we pulled from some archival from a film that he did. There's a couple of shots of Edward R. Dudley in a diplomatic meeting with President Tubman and other high-level Liberian officials. There's development work happening like mines and rubber plantations. So mm-hmm. The archival was just beautiful from that period. And we pulled from the Griff Davis archives that are housed at Howard, but also Dorothy Davis, who manages the archive as well, contributed. So it was just for us, I think, probably one of the most special segments of the film, because I think these are images that not very many people have seen or know Mm -hmm. about. Yeah, it was Mm -hmm. neat. If I 
remember correctly, I mean, it was pictures like we imagined yeah. in the past as our diplomats and top hats yeah. in mm-hmm. some cases. Playing right? croquet. Nice cars. Yeah. Yes. Playing cro- yes. I was just yes. about to say. And the croquet as just like an alternate universe they were also living in to bring politics back into this, right? Because the next question I was going to ask was about what it would have been like in the United States and what family said it was like in the United States at the time. You alluded to this before in the answer to your question about how there would be a moment of progress and then after Reconstruction, nothing. But it's something that I'm very curious about is not just the legal changes, but the cultural changes that have to happen in order for people to make progress in their professional careers. The film really centers on a period where the department was described as pale male in Yale. So I wanted to ask two questions about just what society was like for them writ large. But first, just with the department and the institution itself, did you all gather some insights about what that was like for them to work within the Department of State at that time? There's that moment in Dudley's audio archives where he is telling the story about how he comes back home to the United States and is at events and is introduced as the ambassador to Liberia. And people ask him, oh, how do you like our country? Because they cannot believe that a black man could be an ambassador. And you can hear him. I've talked about this a few times. It's one of my favorite parts of the film because it's very subtle. You can Mm -hmm. hear him banging on the table in frustration as he's telling the story in his audio archive because of how it impacted him Mm. to be not accepted by peers in that way, to be assumed to be something else because of the culture of what was going on in our country at the time. So I think that it was difficult for them. I mean, we explore the topic of walking that tightrope and how do you represent your country overseas when your country doesn't stand up for you at home. Unfortunately, all three of our characters in the film had passed, so we weren't able to interview them and ask them those things specifically. But we were lucky to have the audio archives to have their voices as part of the film. I think another aspect is the fact that once all three were working within the State Department, they excelled. They were incredible at their jobs. They were promoted. Carl Rowan negotiating treaties, making change, making impact. And I think the lesson there is also really about the pipeline and how you are able to learn about these jobs, pass the exam, take the exam, know how to navigate the system. So just mm-hmm. the importance of creating opportunities. I think even though they did experience what we would say today are regular microaggressions in the workplace, but they also loved the work and thrived at the work. But they were some of the lucky few that were able to gain entry at that time. One thing that Dorothy Davis, who's Griff Davis's daughter, she was in Liberia during this early period. She'd made the comment in one of our research interviews with her that for her, particularly in her family, and I think for many Black diplomats, they felt more freedom being overseas Mm -hmm. than they did coming back to D.C. or to home. So being overseas, they were able to be their fully authentic selves without the racism and racial violence that was happening in the United States back home. And I think an interesting aspect as well that we don't cover in the film, but I think could probably be another film, (laughs) is that at the same time when you push into the 60s, when you have African nations becoming independent, you have Black diplomats Africa coming to the United States 
and not being able to eat in restaurants, not being able to go to hotels, Mm. experiencing segregation. And that created a diplomatic issue (laughs) that the State Department had to address. So it was both American Black diplomats experiencing that at home, feeling in some ways freer overseas, and also Black diplomats from newly independent countries coming to the United States, experiencing that racism and the United States having to answer for it on both fronts in some ways. The contradictions are pretty rich and stunning. So talking about the way that Black diplomats were struggling with that tension of advocating for an American way of life while they were abroad and then facing discrimination at home, at a personal level, why is it you think these men were willing to represent America? And how do you think they stayed motivated to continue the work? One of my favorite lines in the film is Ambassador Aurelia Brazil's quote, where she says, the currency of diplomacy is optimism. And you have to be optimistic to be a diplomat. And I think with these three characters and with many Black diplomats, people of color that were representing the United States, I think, then and now. There is a belief in the promise of America. You recognize the issues, you recognize the hypocrisies, you recognize the work that still needs to be done. But I think they really believed, number one, in the possibilities of America. I think they believed that when you're looking at the civil rights movement, that creating opportunity in every field, in every industry, in every profession was important. So for them, it's creating those pathways within diplomacy, which was a very closed space. And I think they believed in diplomacy. Terrence Todman really saw value in diplomacy and how it keeps America safe and how it protects America and what it is Mm -hmm. to build bridges, what it is to engage with other people, other cultures, other nations, and the importance of that. So I think all of those things were being balanced with a recognition of what it is to be Black in America then and now, and believing in the work and the job and not shying away from being honest about America. That's also something that came out really with Terrence Todman and speaking to his family and colleagues. He did not shy away from an honest conversation about the work that America still has to do on issues of racial violence, on issues of equity. But he also believed in the value of diplomacy and what he could contribute, his talent and his ability, what he could contribute to that field. Yeah, I was going to add, going off of what Leola just said, is a very common thread for all three of them is a belief in themselves and a belief that they had every right to be at that table just as much as anybody else, if not more in some ways, and not letting anything deter them from that path that they believed they deserved and had a right to be on. And there is something really powerful in all three of their stories and the agency that they had and deciding their own destiny and making sure that the path that they wanted to go down their career path, nothing was going to stop them and that they were going to break down the barriers to make that happen. It's something we can all look to. And I think diplomats of color now can look at and really see and stand on the shoulders of them as they move forward in their own careers. Because as we all know, Things have gotten better, but there's still a lot of work to be done. 
Yeah, I just wanted to add that one of the things that comes up with Terrence Todman is his love of foreign languages and cross-cultural exchange. I think for a lot of diplomats who listen to this, that cross-cultural experience is a huge part of being a diplomat as well. And I think while it's challenging at times and probably today (laughs) sometimes to defend certain things happening at home, there's so much value in cultural understanding and international exchange as well. And I think there was a real joy in the work itself too. Thank you for all your answers. I just want to, in my personal opinion, affirm a few of them. Kylie, what you just said is so true. I think that for me and a lot of my colleagues, love of the work is what gets you through some of the tougher days. Mm -hmm. And Rochelle, you said, I definitely noticed that these men were very competent and aware of it and therefore confident, which was great to see. And finally, what Leola said as well to start, I think resonates as well, that hope is the currency of diplomacy. So I'm going to shift slightly new topic. One of the things that I was struck by, and I'm sure others have noticed yourselves as well, is the relationship or the support that all of these ambassadors had from their family. And in particular, the close relationship between Ambassador Todman and his wife, where she talked about helping him with some of his work. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the role that families have played in this, Leola especially, I would imagine, <laughs> since you are. I, remember. I feel like when you enter the Foreign Service, it becomes a family project. I mean, it's not just the Foreign Service officer, but it's everyone that officers bringing with them into this world that is becoming part of the diplomatic effort. And I would say when looking at these three characters, the one that stands out, obviously, I think to me is Ambassador Todman, mainly because we were able to interview his wife, Doris Todman. It's a lot of work. I mean, she was a partner. They were in the Foreign Service at a time when she herself was being graded on her performance, though she wasn't getting paid for it, (laughs) and helping him with his work. And the kids also feeling the weight of diplomacy because you had to put your best effort forward if you were the DCM son or the ambassador's son, and especially being the only Black family overseas. It was also this added pressure of expectations to do well. So I think the families are as much a part of these stories as the individuals themselves. And something that didn't make it into the film, but we loved it, was Doris Todman talking about how at one point she was trying to unionize the wives to see if they would get paid for the effort that they would have to put in for representational events and dinners and making the clothes that they had to wear. She said it didn't really take off, but she was very passionate about it at one point because it is a lot of pressure. That's really interesting. I can imagine a spouse strike would just shut down about everyone. <laughs> <Right. across the laughs> <line. laughs> that would be great. So sticking with that theme, we talked a little bit before about your ideas for what other sort of projects you could do. So if you were to zoom out and just playing with ideas now, what are some other groups you might look at? I mean, obviously you had an hour to play with. You took three prominent diplomats 
Are there others that came up that you just said, not enough time, not enough archival footage? Women. (laughs) Yeah. 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 We would love to. We've been talking about developing another project that looks at more along the lines of gender and diplomacy and trying to find a story within that theme. And we would just, you know, love to expand on that and add women's voices and their experiences in the State Department. I wanted to ask about some of the reception sorts of reactions that you've gotten from the film, starting with the State Department itself. And one quick disclaimer, as a Foreign Service officer, I'm doing this interview in my own personal capacity, so any views I express are my own, not at all those of the State Department. But one thing I noticed recently is that uh, Secretary Blinken presided over naming the cafeteria the Terrence Todman Cafeteria, which is fitting because, well, I'll let you explain it, but one of the very prominent moments in the film is a young Foreign Service officer, Terrence Todman, realizing that he could not eat at the segregated cafeteria in Virginia. I will pass it to you there about either that incident or any reactions that you've gotten from the film. So one scene in the film is a story of Terrence Todman early in his career going to the Foreign Service Institute for language and area studies and discovering that there was no place for him to eat because FSI used a restaurant as an eating facility and Virginia was segregated. So it's through his efforts and determination that the State Department was able to create an area within that restaurant that was desegregated. And eventually, white Foreign Service officers also started eating in that section. So it became a desegregated eating facility for Foreign Service officers. And it was really moving on February 1st of this year. The State Department did a tribute to Terrence Todman. We had a panel discussing his legacy, his career, his impact. And then later that day, they unveiled a plaque because they had named the dining room in the State Department after Terrence Todman in honor of his early efforts to create space for Black Foreign Service officers to eat. So it was beautiful. It was presided over by Secretary of State Blinken, and Terrence Todman Jr. was there and spoke as well. So it was a great event, and it felt really nice to have the film connected with something to do with Ambassador Todman's legacy and impact. Just a little possibly unknown tidbit or fact is that the briefing room is actually named after it's the Carl Rowan briefing room. So now there's the Carl Rowan briefing room and there's the Terrence Todman cafeteria. Yeah. So Edward Dudley, the one who doesn't have a room named after him, (laughs) as far as I know, he argued that developing countries were looking to America to live up to its ideals. And I believe the notion was that embracing non-white diplomats would contribute to this objective. Was he successful in making that argument, do you think? I think he was successful in Liberia in implementing the Point Four program. And I think that was... Can you say more about that? Well, I think my understanding is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but development was an important strategy of U.S. foreign policy to grow our allies, particularly in the face of communism and the threat of Russia. So that was an important tactic. And it's in the film, the Russia propaganda about the U.S. very strategically leveraged U.S. racial violence to 
developing non-white nations to say you want to ally with the U.S., but look at how they treat African-Americans and communism is more egalitarian. So I think in that regard, he was implementing U.S. foreign policy. And partly why he left was because Eisenhower was bringing in a more militaristic foreign policy as well, or disagreed with that. That was a little bit worded poorly. I mean, partly what I was thinking of was another interview, probably in another podcast with Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who's our ambassador to the UN right now. And I believe she was talking specifically about meeting with the Taliban and the impact of them having to engage with an African-American woman. But also, if I'm getting my stories straight, this also happened to her in Africa, and she would have a white note-taker with her. And they would sometimes, or in one case, ask the white note-taker to sit in the seat of prominence with the other interlocutor. So she did it, actually. She actually sat in the other chair and then let them discover their mistake very awkwardly, (laughs) which I thought that that was an interesting technique. So I was struck by this idea, because I think he had a point, right, which was really pushing the notion that getting more diverse diplomats out in the field really drives other countries to reconsider what the United States really stands for. Well, and I think like any movement, it's iterative. It's not So did Dudley change things in an obvious way in that regard? Maybe not, but certainly then makes room for the next person that makes room for Todman. You know what I mean? That makes room for Ambassador Brazil. And I think so if you look at the arc of it, yeah, you'd probably argue that yes, but the impact wasn't immediate. Immediate, yeah. And to Rochelle's point, too, I mean, one of the things that Dudley says that he was most proud of when he is leaving Liberia is the fact that he was able to open the Negro circuit for people that were working with him. You see Rupert Lloyd and Charles Hansen are now out of the Negro circuit and are posted in Paris and Geneva and Switzerland. And then Beatrice Carson, who wasn't a foreign service officer, but she was office support staff, she's posted Mm -hmm. to Rome. So his impact, something that he felt very proud of, was like opening that door for these foreign service officers and really trying to help break down that circuit. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. an important point about Mm -hmm. paying it forward. And I liked what Kylie was talking about, this contest that was also going on with Russia and communism, because it was not just the right thing to do, but it was perhaps also the strategic mm-hmm. thing to do, because we were having a contest yeah. of ideas. Well, right? I mean, that's an argument that comes up in the film, too, that did the U.S. push forward on civil rights because we wanted to, or was it because of the sure, international yeah. community putting pressure on the U.S. as well? So, I mean, that's the nature of social change. Institutions don't just change out of good nature (laughs) or morality. (laughs) They change because, you know, they get external forces. So related to that, you've said that one of your main goals in this film is also to inspire diverse students to consider diplomacy as a career. So can you say any more about that? When my husband first started in the Foreign Service 20 years ago, there still weren't that many people of color in the service. And 
my hope is with this film, number one, I don't think diplomacy is a very understood profession. Not many people know what diplomats do. They don't really understand how you become a diplomat. So I hope this for younger viewers opens that world of diplomacy up. And number two, that younger viewers of color can see themselves in these stories somehow, see the pathways that these diplomats have created and understand that they themselves have a right to add their voices to how our country is represented overseas. These are just like a handful of the people that helped create the possibility for that, helped create the opportunity for that. I do hope it inspires. It's been something that we've discussed as a company How can we get more schools to see this, more universities to see this, engage in more conversations around issues of race, equity, and diplomacy? I really hope that people are inspired to at least, if not the Foreign Service, looking at international public service as a possibility. Mm -hmm. Because we have a right as people of color, as Americans, to add our voices to how the U.S. is represented overseas. And also an aspect of knowing our history, Mm -hmm. our full history as a country, and not just the history that maybe we've been taught for generations. And telling the untold stories of trailblazers that have been left out of the history books. It's also really telling a different part of history that we haven't heard, a different side of the civil rights movement. I mean, this was right in the middle of the civil rights movement, but it's a different way to look at it, a different entryway. What else was going on in the world at that time? We very much stayed domestic in a lot of our history and to look at it from an international perspective and what was going on and who the faces were overseas. I think that's a really important story to tell. Our hope is also this film will help tell that story to students in high school and college. Yeah, absolutely. I think you definitely achieved that in terms of putting out a film where, as Leola said, people see themselves in those roles. And it's very impressive in that regard and weaves in, like you were saying, a different aspect of the civil rights movement that is usually portrayed as domestic only. So it's really fascinating. Yeah, I'd just like to offer my kudos. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This will be the last question. And hopefully an uplifting one. So for people who, and we've talked about this a little bit, but feel maybe stymied in their career, maybe lacked opportunities that others have had, is there anything that you would share with them in terms of what you've seen in terms of this, well, it's an overused word now, but in terms of resilience or in terms of just creativity in finding solutions to such problems? It's really important for people to seek out opportunities and not self-select out or think there's not a place for me in the foreign service. If someone feels, again, they love foreign languages, cultural exchange, maybe they're diplomatically inclined to go after these jobs, pursue these majors. Then on the hiring side, we become more equitable and really help people get in the door in the first place. And then how to navigate when you're in a hostile institution, I think, is a much more challenging question. One thing I love about Dudley and the memo is that he finds a legal solution to the problem. So he goes back to his NAACP training and he makes a legal argument to the State Department that what you're doing is against the law. So Mm -hmm. he's using his tools that are appropriate to use to make change. And he does. So I think 
if someone is facing discrimination at work or microaggressions, there are pathways to challenge it too. And that's hopefully a lesson from Dudley, which is to not be afraid to fight from the inside. Great point. Yeah, and I think right now with Secretary Blinken and the appointment of Ambassador Abercrombie Wynne Stanley, I think there's more space for this kind of conversation to take place. And I think there's an allyship that has to happen as well for white males, for white women to say something if they see something that's not right and not just ignore it because it's not just people of color who have to be breaking down these barriers and making these movements. It's all of us in order for it to progress. Something hopeful, I think this current State Department is trying to make movements in the right direction. I agree with everything that's been said. I think the creation of the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, the appointment of the ambassador, are all steps in the right direction. I think there's a sense of a real commitment to these issues. I mean, one of the things that we learned just speaking to foreign service officers and diplomats, they felt that there would be a lot of talk around these issues that would come and go with the four years of administration in and out, in and out. And what was needed was more institutional commitment to it. And hopefully with the creation of this office, that is an institutional commitment to it. What I take from Ambassador Todman too is you can't be quiet. And I know that's often a really hard thing to do when you're starting off in a career that you're afraid of speaking out in terms of injustices and fighting for what is right is hard when you're trying to make your way through an institution. But there's just something very inspiring about the story of Ambassador Todman, who I don't think ever was quiet about anything that he saw was wrong. That's the impression that we got from many of the people that we spoke to. And I think that's great. And you had asked earlier a larger question about how the State Department has viewed the film. And we've had 87 State Department screenings in the last two months since the film has been released. And all over the world, we participated in some of the panel discussions. And it's made us feel really good about how the film is being used as a vehicle for discussion to talk about these issues of diversity and equity in the Foreign Service. And I've just been amazed at some of the discussions that we've been privy to and the people being very honest and brave and sharing their personal experiences. And we hope that the film can be used as a pathway for real honest discussion about what people are experiencing and hopefully also solutions and how to make the State Department culture, the Foreign Service, better and stronger. And I think diversity is part of that equation. I think it's a better, stronger Foreign Service when we celebrate diversity and we celebrate inclusion and we are committed to it. It makes us better able to engage with the rest of the world. Indeed. Thank you for all that. Thank you, all three of you. I'm sure with that closing pitch, you're going to have a line of people ready to be your next interns. <laughs> I'll sign up after I retire. Project. Great. Seriously, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your thoughts. This episode was brought to you as part of a Una Chapman Cox Foundation project on American diplomacy and the Foreign Service. 
The Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training, or ADST, manages the podcast series. Special thanks to our assistants, Hawkins Nessler and Garrett Mishmerheisen. If you're interested in exploring a career in the State Department, please visit careers.state.gov. To find out more about the practice of diplomacy, please visit uccoxfoundation.org or ADST or the American Academy of Diplomacy. Please rate and review this podcast so that other folks interested in foreign policy and careers in the State Department can find us. If you have questions or suggestions, please contact info at ADST.org. Thanks so much.